faith series over the uh, epistle or letter, that's all that means, uh, of James. Now, last week, I'm going to try to do this brief recap briefly, which uh, that seldom happens, but uh, last week we learned that James was the author of this letter, and it was James, the half-brother of Jesus, so he was raised with Jesus, uh, and he was the one who wrote this. We also discovered that James wrote this letter to believers who were scattered abroad in Palestine. Okay, and the Jewish believers that were scattered abroad, uh, abroad all over Palestine were under just extreme pressure. They were under so much persecution. They were being persecuted on all sides by the Romans, by the Jews, by the, I mean, by the pagans. They were just under heavy, heavy persecution. Uh, and I think it was starting to affect them because uh, they started, you know, having some inner church squabbles and, and some of them were even compromising. And by compromising, I mean uh, some started pursuing the things of the world more than they were pursuing the things of God. So they started compromising uh, a little bit. And the enemy was just tempting them left and right because they were struggling. And that's when the enemy always seems to come after us when we're struggling. Uh, and he was tempting them with things like greed and, and lust and, and envy and pride. Like a lot of the same stuff he tempts us with. Uh, and evidently that persecution and temptation was actually wearing them down spiritually. So James wrote this letter to encourage them to do two main things. Uh, first, he was encouraging them to learn to embrace their trials and struggles. Uh, and by embrace, I mean see them as an opportunity. See them as an opportunity to grow and to get closer to God and be more mature. Uh, and the second reason he wrote this was he was also encouraging them to pursue peace and unity in their churches. So today we're going to discuss uh, some concepts James used to um, encourage his readers to succeed and be more spiritual. Because uh, James tried uh, to encourage them by promoting humility and by promoting perseverance and by promoting wisdom. So that's what we titled the message today, Humility, Perseverance, and Wisdom, because I'm not very creative. Okay, let's jump in. James chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 9. It says, but the brother of humble circumstances, underscore that if you're following along, uh, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with scorching wind and weathers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Okay, so now first of all it says, uh, by, it says, a brother of humble circumstances. And what they actually mean by that is somebody that's poor. I mean, that's just a very wordy way of saying somebody that's poor in need. Uh, so that's basically who he was addressing first. Now, last week in verse 2, James asked his readers to be joyous in the face of trials. If you remember this, look, James 1, 2. said, consider it all what? Joy. joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, obviously, the concept of having joy when you're suffering um, is kind of tough to swallow. And we discussed that last week, you know, what that meant. It's a difficult concept. But basically, James simply wanted them to change their perspective on trials. He's saying, listen, you're going to have them the rest of your Christian life. You're going to have trials. So change your perspective. When they come on, you look at it as this is an opportunity for me to grow somewhere uh, where I need to grow. Maybe there's something in this area that I'm not doing well, and God needs me to learn through this trial. Uh, so he was just trying to get them to you know, change their perspective a little bit and look at their suffering joyously because it would lead to spiritual maturity. Now, in verses 9 through 11, James is asking them to do something equally foreign, something equally difficult. This is hard for him. He is asking those who are poor to glory in their high position. Okay, think about that for a second. I mean, I don't know how many people out here like me don't have a lot of money, but I don't remember when I was 15 going, I sure hope I'm poor. You know, I mean, nobody thinks that way, but he'll explain what he means, but when you first read it, it kind of comes across weird when you first read it, 
And he also asked the wealthy or the rich, he wanted them to glory in, the, in their humiliation. Now, now, both of those are equally hard for people to comprehend. Because you're thinking, why would someone who has a ton of money be, you know, humbled by that? Why would they be humbled by that? So there, it's, it's a lot. But what James meant here was the poor believer should also consider those trials joyous. He's saying, listen, yes, you're poor, you're in need, but there is something to be gained from learning how to trust God when you're struggling financially. And I don't know if that's ever happened to anybody in here, but have you ever had one of those months or years or, you know, decades <laughs> where, you know, every time, every week comes along with a new financial challenge and you feel like, oh my gosh, I am never going to get on top. Anybody ever felt that way? You know, and, and especially when you first get married because you think you know stuff and you don't, you know. And, and you have two people trying to work their finances together. And a lot of times, that's a train wreck the first few years. Anybody experience? Don't, never mind. Don't raise your hands. Forget that. Might get yourself in trouble. Right? But it's difficult. It's, it's a difficult situation. But, you know, learning to, to appreciate every circumstance you're in, knowing God can work in any circumstance you're in, is really, really important. And that's kind of what's at the heart of this, right? Because God is going to kind of use the trials for the rich and the poor the same way. Both he's going to use, he's going to use trials with both of them to teach him how to be, how to grow and how to be more mature as a believer and, and in turn be blessed. So what did James actually mean by glory in his high position? I think it's important we break this down. If you're a note taker, uh, you probably want to take a note on this. But first of all, the word glory uh, in the Greek, now this is a tough one because it has that <laughs> in it, you know, that, that Greek people have and I don't. But it's, it's kauchai uh, omai. <laughs> Look, anyway. But uh, that's the word. And it literally means to express an unusually high degree of confidence. So when he's saying glory in something, he's not saying, you know, jump, run around jumping up and down shouting. He's saying to have a very unusually high degree of confidence despite your situation. So if, I, if we were putting it in common terms, he'd be saying, listen, if you're in need or you're poorer than others or you're, you, know, you find yourself wanting, you need to be confident that God is going to use that situation. He's not going to allow you to go through that for nothing. He will use that to better you. That's what he's trying to tell them. So he's saying the, confident, the, the poor should basically be confident that God would meet all their needs. Right? He wanted them to know, listen, he didn't want them to feel hopeless or, or unimportant because of their, their lack of resources. He's like, listen, I don't want any of that stuff to creep into your head. Because that's what the devil's going to speak in your ear when you're struggling financially. Where's your God at right now? Look, that guy over there doesn't care anything about God. He doesn't even go to church. He's driving an Escalade, lives in a six-bedroom house, and look at you. Is that ever, I'm not going to ask if that's ever happened to anybody, but I, I know it's probably happened to a lot of us. It just goes through our mind, right? He didn't want them to feel that way because, remember, God used a lot of poor people in the Bible to do amazing things. As a matter of fact, he turned the world upside down with 12 apostles and a few women, and none of them were very wealthy to speak of. All of them were pretty much poor, Right? And he turned the world upside down with it. And he's saying, listen, don't look at how the world categorizes you and believe that. Oh, you're poor, so you don't mean as much. He's like, don't believe that. Glory in that circumstance. Then he also uh, was warning the rich not, uh, you know, to be humble in their situation. And basically what he's saying is don't feel superior to or look down on the poor. Right? And I don't know if you've ever been around the wealthy person who looks at you like you're dirt. Anybody ever been around that person? Is any one of you that person that looks down on other people? But I'm just saying, uh, you know, he's saying don't do that. See, James knew it was tempting for the wealthy to start thinking they didn't need God anymore. I've seen this personally. I'll talk about that in a minute. But he knew that that was really tempting. And James didn't want them to start depending on their wealth more than they depended on God. 
right? And he was worried that would happen, right? Because here's the thing. Wealth comes and goes, and that's what he says. It's like a flower. It's beautiful for a while, then it's scorched by the sun, and it goes away. Uh, so wealth comes and goes, but the blessings of God and the promises of God last forever. God's grace, his provision, it lasted forever, and it always lasts forever. So James wanted the rich to be humble and know the origin of their wealth, and I think that's really important. Sometimes I think we work so hard to get what we have that we forget it's God that's given us the ability to work that hard. I've had people literally say to me, well, I'm not going to thank God for what I have. God didn't t- spend the time in college. God didn't spend the time working his way up, climbing up the ladder. And they think they have such a brilliant argument. And I always look at them and say, yeah, you're absolutely right. But every breath you drew while you were doing that hard work, God gave you. Everything, every provision you had, God saw to it that you had it. If you would have pulled God out of that scenario, you wouldn't even have been alive, let alone been able to keep, uh, to achieve that, that, that wealth that you've achieved. But sometimes, you know, that's the way people look at it. They, they allow it to, you know, to consume them, if you will, Right? And I've seen that. I've seen that many, many times. He says, be humble in your circumstances. Understand, understand where your wealth comes from. That's basically what he's trying to say. And I love how he said that, humble in your circumstances, right? Know where your wealth comes comes from because one of these days it's going to be gone. It's not going to be worth anything. So understand where it comes from. See, he wanted them to be humble enough to invest their wealth in the kingdom because the more they invested in the kingdom, the greater spiritual dividends it would pay. Look, and you, you can invest in anything in this world, and it might even do well. But everything you get from your physical investment sooner or later will go away. But everything you invest in God never goes away. It stays forever. It might be reaching people you know, in other countries. It might be reaching people in your community. It's an investment that follows you into eternity. Now, I've, I have personally witnessed both the wealthy and poor believers allow their circumstances to consume them. And it's frustrating to me in a way. I've been there, but it's frustrating to me in a way because I think we're being short-sighted. Because I've seen poor believers allow their lack to, like, consume them. They're always whining about what they don't have and constantly looking at what others have and lusting after that and saying, well, I wish I had that. And sometimes they even get bitter at people who have more than them, which I, I don't understand. But I've, I've literally witnessed people allow it to consume them, so all they talk about is what they don't have and what they wish they had. They're never thankful for what they do have. You know, sometimes I wish God would, like, send them a text, because then maybe they'd pay attention. And in that text, say, listen, if you want more, appreciate what you have, then we'll talk. You know, I wish he would send that text to every one of them. But I've, seen, I've witnessed that time and time again. You know, and, and I've, I've witnessed people get consumed with their wealth. I can't tell you how many times. So much so that they forget that God allows them to have everything they have. They forget all about that. They forget that everything they have, God made it possible. And if they knew that, they would be investing in godly causes, but a lot of them, they just think they don't need them, and they start drifting away. And what ends up happening is their God becomes their wealth. I've witnessed that so many times. But I've said this a million times, but I have been at many people's dying bedside, and I've never heard anyone mention money, ever, at their dying bedside. For something you spent your whole life pursuing, money and things, I have sat at the bedside of millionaires and and paupers, and I've never heard any of them worried about their money. They're just not. It doesn't matter in those last days. And and in essence, what happens with wealthy people who get consumed with it is, like I said, it becomes their God. So James wanted the rich and the poor alike to confidently allow God to use them right where they are. Right? Don't look at your circumstances as a curse. Maybe you don't have as much, and God will use that. 
Maybe you can reach people who don't have as much. We don't know, but trust God in whatever circumstances you're in, regardless of your financial or social uh, you know, situation, and God will provide everything you need. And I, just, I think sometimes we forget that, and that's what James is really trying to push here. Uh, he wanted him to understand the concept that, hey, wherever you are in life, socially, wherever you are financially, God will use you there, right? But so many people miss the opportunity to be used because they're too busy whining about their situation, not even thinking for a second that maybe I'm here for a reason. So that's what he's trying to say. And let's move on to verse 12. He says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. I'm going to underscore that. The crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who what? Those who love him. Okay, we'll get to that. Now, verse 12 is kind of a continuation of verses 1 and 2 in that uh, it's discussing the blessing of persevering through trials. What a blessing it is to persevere, right? But in verse 12, James takes it like a little bit farther, a step farther, because he explains what that blessing is. And I love this, because he said when the one perseveres under trial, that when that guy is approved, and I'll tell you what that means here in a minute, they will receive a crown of life, okay? Now, the word approved used in verse 12 in the Greek is doikimos, and it means considered genuine or worthy after being tested and passing those tests. Does that sound familiar to a definition you got last week? Let's look at that, right? It's very similar to the word proof we saw last week in 1 Peter uh, in the message last week, 1 Peter 1.6. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this, that word there in 1 Peter was dokimion. It's a little bit different vari- variation, but it meant kind of the same thing, considered pure after you know, being proved through testing. So it's kind of the same thing. So what James was saying was that the one who is tried and stays faithful, that's what it means being approved. You remain faithful during that time. Despite what you were going through, you, you stood your ground for Christ. That person is the approved person, and they receive the crown of life. Now, I've said this many, many, many times, but there Theologians love to debate everything. I don't know why, but so many times people, I swear, I think they read the Bible looking for something to argue about. You ever met that person? Here's kind of what we see here. I've heard a lot of debate about this, about what the crown of life actually refers to. Okay, what's the exact thing? And people get all tied up into that, and I don't understand. Because either way, it's a, it's a reward for doing good for believers. So does it really matter? You know, I mean, I don't think it really matters, but people argue what it actually means. Uh, so here's, here's kind of what that argument is. The words crown of life simply mean rewards of life, basically the, the English way to say that, right? And, and some think it refers to the rewards believers get in the kingdom for their faithfulness here on earth. And still others believe that it's the crown of life is something, some kind of rewards that you get here, here on earth while you're still, you know, walking on the face of this earth. And, you know, to be honest with you, this is one of, those, one of those words that both definitions could work. I don't know why it matters. I mean, if, if I told you, listen, uh, you're going to receive rewards, you know, in the kingdom, you're going to go, well, forget it then. I want them here. Would that be, your, would that be your, you know, the way you reacted to that? Or if I said, listen, you know, you're going to get your crown of life here rather than in the kingdom, would you go, well, forget it. I don't want it then. No, I think, does anybody here feel the way I do? I want my rewards wherever and whenever I can get them. Don't you? You know, it's like your boss saying, we're going to give you $1,000 in December. Well, I don't want it if it's in December. I'll blow it on Christmas presents. That, you know what I mean? I just, 
I don't understand why this matters so much. It says that, you know, if you're, if you're approved, you'll get the crown of life. But we'll look at it for argument's sake, because you'll probably run across it. So if the crown of life is referring to the rewards here on earth, there is support throughout Scripture. And Galatians 6, 8 is some of that support. And I'll read that. I'm not going to read all of them, but I'll read this one. Galatians 6, 8 says, For the one who sows to his flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, capital S, talking about God, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So this backs that up. I mean, in context, the reap eternal life here is not talking about salvation of the soul or getting saved. It's talking about having abundant life, reaping eternal life. The phrase in the Greek more, reads more like abundant life, like, like John 10.10 10 says. It says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it what? Abundantly. So what, what was being said here in Galatians is if you uh, reap to the Spirit, God will give you an abundant life. A life full of abundance in different arenas. Uh, if you, if, but if, you, if everything you do is to serve the flesh, then the only thing that comes out of that is death. That's basically what he was saying here. Right? And abundant in the Greek, it's kind of funny, is the word parisos, and it means extraordinary. So I love that. Yes, if you live for God, I will promise you this. God will give you an extraordinary life here on earth. He will. He'll bless you. And I have witnessed poor people and rich people alike who have put God first in their finances, I've put God first in their, in their everyday life, and, and, and I see God continually blessing them. See, some reason people get it in their mind that it's like a sin for people to be wealthy. Do you know Abraham was the equivalent of a billionaire if he would have been in this day and age? And I didn't see God bashing him for that because his heart was right. He, he used it for God's causes. And we've seen poor people all over the scripture do amazing things, Jesus being one of them. So I don't know where we get that. If you want this extraordinary life here on earth, I promise you, whether that's what it's referring to there or not, if you give your life to Christ and make him first, you will have that extraordinary life that it's talking about. Okay? Now, if the crown of life refers to the kingdom or the millennial kingdom, then 2 Timothy 4.8 kind of supports that. 2 Timothy 4.7, we'll start there. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the what? Crown of righteousness, which the Lord, uh, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. This is discussing the day when Jesus returns, right? And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing, right? Now, according to this view, faithful believers get a special reward in the millennial kingdom. And that is true also. I could have spent hours on these two theories. I'm telling you, I could have. But... You see in Revelation and several other places that those who, who serve God faithfully, when we have that thousand-year kingdom, they will actually have positions serving under the person of Christ the ruler. And I don't know about you, but I think that would be awesome. Don't you? And those who are not faithful have to sit the bench for a thousand years. Can you even imagine sitting the bench? Basically, I'm using sports terms. That means being left out of it for a thousand years, right? I mean, you're not going to be punished per se. You just won't be rewarded. So there is some backing for that. Right? But, but listen to this. Okay, James 1.12 again. Uh, he says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who what? So one thing that remains the same, whether it means the kingdom coming or in this earth, one thing is the same either way. That's only set aside for those who love him. Now, we always think of love as this, you know, fuzzy feeling we get in seventh grade art class and we think the girl across from us is pretty, right? That's not love, okay? Love is an action. And if you look at John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. So basically, 
if you're not living faithfully, you're not loving him. And if you're not loving him, it doesn't matter if it's in the kingdom or here. You're not getting it anyway. You see what I mean? Those rewards are for the people who are willing to be faithful no matter what. Now, if I had to nail one down that I believe it's more likely, I would say most likely it's that blessings in this life. I think that's what he's talking about when he says the crown of life. Remember, he's encouraging people who are struggling in this life. And when we get to James chapter 5, it kind of expounds on that. If you look, 5.11, he says, We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, uh, that, if, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Now, the reason I think he's probably talking about this world in 5, he, re- he references Job. How many people have read the story of Job? It's kind of depressing, not going to lie. Right? Uh, he loses everything, and he's tested by everybody, and, you know, the enemy's trying to get him to curse God. He never does. He remains faithful, and in the end, God blesses him here way more than what he had before the devil started tempting him. And so his faithfulness got him rewards here. So most likely, he was saying that those who endure will have the crowns of life here. Now, to be honest with you, I personally, I think that there are a lot of people who don't enjoy their faith because they're not serving God. You know, if you're serving him and doing what God asks and not allowing anyone to change that and standing your ground no matter what, you are going to have an abundant life. If you don't have an abundant life, now realize when I say abundant life, I don't mean money, okay? It's good to have, I've heard, right? That's not what I'm saying, you know? And, and I, what I'm talking about an abundant life is peace. What do you consider abundant? I mean, honestly, would you rather have a pocket full of cash or love and peace in your home? Which would you rather have? Because I have counseled people who have the money to do anything. And they've all told me they would trade it all in for the peace and unity and love in their house that they missed their whole life while chasing wealth. So when I'm telling you that, you know, you can have peace in your service of God, I'm not necessarily talking about God's going to bless you with money, but he will bless your life. Have you ever had that moment when you feel like God has just got his hands on you and he's protecting you and, and, and directing your lives? When you get that feeling, it's usually right when you are the most dedicated to serving him. And you ever notice when you're not serving him like you should, you never feel more distant, and there's no peace in your life. Okay, I, I just think that's really important. We have to remember, if you're not having an abundant, blessed life, I'm not saying you're never going to have trials, but if you're not getting through those trials with joy, I, you're probably not serving him like you should. That's another sermon. Anyway, okay, let's move on. Starting in verse 13. He says, and I love this, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Anybody ever heard that? Why is God tempting me like this? You ever hear that? It's like, yeah, God didn't make the eight Big Macs, my friend. You know what I mean? But God doesn't listen to this. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself, what? Does not tempt anyone. Okay, but eat. now here's the kicker. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by what? His own lust. Ladies, that means her too. Okay, just so don't think you're walking out of here without that being said. Right? So here's the thing. James, in verses 13 to 18, he really wants to draw this comparison between the origin of temptation and the origin of blessing. He wants to really draw that, that comparison so that everyone can see it. Right? Because in verses 13 through 15, he explains that God doesn't bring temptation in anyone's life. And, and we know that. Remember, the devil is called the tempter. I don't think God wants to, you know, get in that lane, right? Then, instead, James said that we are tempted when we are uh, drawn aside by our own lust. That means we get tempted when 
the lust from our sinful nature kicks in. That's when we get tempted. And people don't like to admit that because they don't like to admit that they have a sinful nature. I mean, I'm sorry, Christians, I hate to say this, but we're a self-righteous bunch now, and it drives me crazy. Because Christian people act like, well, I never had thoughts like that. Please. Well, don't say you never lie because you're busting that out right now. Right? I just, I don't understand. Listen, we are tempted. We all sin, and the devil knows we all sin. And we blame the devil for everything, too, which is hilarious. Did it say we are tempted when the devil pulls us aside? No. I mean, yeah, he's got a bad reputation. I'll give you that. But here's the thing. We are tempted when we are drawn aside by our lust. That means the sin nature that exists in all of us. That's what's pulling us aside. Now, does the devil play a role in it? Yeah, he can see what easily stumbles us. Now, understand this. The devil cannot read your thoughts. People think that all the time. He cannot. He's, he's not everywhere at all times. He's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. Listen, he has demons that help him with his job, but, but understand this. He does not read your mind. He is not God. So people say, how does the devil know how to tempt me then? Well, I could probably be around you for a week and know how to tempt you too. Because the things that tempt us usually sneak out of our mouth eventually, don't they? Or out of our actions will reveal them eventually. I think it's not that hard to figure out, right? But every one of us has that sin nature in us. And people hate to admit it, but those evil thoughts you have, and everyone here has had evil thoughts and continues to have evil thoughts. Now, you don't have to raise your hand to admit it. But if you deny it, Go ahead. I want to talk to you. Because here's the, th here's the thing. When you're in traffic, somebody cuts you off. Tell me about your blessed thoughts you're having there. Tell me about your holy thoughts. Anybody? Anybody stand up praising God when they get cut off by some guy with a headphone looking at his iPhone, not paying any attention to what he's doing? How many people get just stoked about that? Nobody. Right? When someone says or does something to your kids, how many people in here go, Jesus loves you? Now, let's be honest. I hate to say this, but you mess with somebody's kids, whatever comes and happens to you, you got coming, right? And if you don't know why, you haven't had kids. You, they come out of the womb, you're ready to fight to the death for them, right? I bet you don't have pure thoughts when somebody hurts their feelings or attacks them. I know you have impure thoughts in other ways we're not going to discuss, all right? We all have that in us, and we don't like to admit it. We don't like to say, there is evil in me that I have to suppress. We don't like to say that. We like to make everybody think we're so righteous. There are no righteous people. There are no sinless people. There was only one, and they crucified him. It doesn't matter if you're a preacher. Listen, I'm just going to tell you right now, this preacher sins often, and so do the other ones. I just admit it. They don't, right? Listen, all of us have it in us, and if you look at 1 John 1, 8, it says, if we say that we have no sin, we are what? Deceiving, Deceiving ourselves, and what? The truth, the truth is not in us. This is a very polite, biblical way of saying, if you think you're sinless, you're delusional. You are delusional. Everybody has sin in their life. Right? Now in verse 15, James reminds us that uh, sinful thoughts aren't sin just to have them. You can't help that you have those thoughts. Look at this. Verse, uh, James 1.15. It says, then when, we, when, then when lust has conceived, now pay attention to that. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to, to sin. And when sin is what? Accomplished. Two very important words, conceived and accomplished. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Having an impure thought about someone from the opposite sex, you don't want to give in to that thought, but it's normal. God created us to be attracted to each other. It's the way it is, right? Here's the thing, though. When the thought manifests itself into action, that's when it's sin. 
or if the only thing keeping you from acting on that sin is opportunity, then you've sinned. Now, people have said for years, well, uh, the Bible says if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. Listen, don't take that too loose. What that's not saying if you've had an impure thought about somebody. It's saying if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, or man, and the only thing keeping you from hooking up with them is opportunity, then you've done it. Because you would if you could, right? But it doesn't mean if you just have an impure thought. We all have impure thoughts. Everybody has that. But when they are manifest into action, they become sin. Your anger at the person who cuts you off at traffic is not sin. Flipping them off, cussing them out, and following them to a parking lot and punching them, now it's sin. (laughs) Right? That's where it goes awry. Okay? If someone says something to your kids and you're angry about it, that's not sin. But if you go over and run their head through a wall without hearing both sides of the story, now it becomes sin. Listen, it's not a sin to be angry. The Bible says be angry and yet do not sin in Ephesians chapter 4. But here's the thing. I'm angry that in Sudan they're killing people for no other reason than they're Christians. That angers me. That's not a sin. But if the next Sudanese guy that walks past me, I clothesline him and beat him down, now it's sin. You see the difference? When lust is conceived, right? When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That's what it's talking about, right? Now the battle against our sinful nature is in itself a trial that all believers are going to have every day. That's probably our greatest trial. The old person inside of us battling the new person. How many people in here really experience that battle? Know what that feels like to, to know what to do that's right, but you just are fighting to do it. Anybody here been that way? Tough, isn't it? The rest of you are going, no, we're perfect. You're a loser. <laughs> it's always going to be there. Just remember, the moment you decide to manifest the thoughts, the moments you decide to give in to that battle in your head, that's when it becomes sin. And it says, uh, when we sin, it brings death. Okay, now this confuses a lot of people. The basic definition for death, I won't bore you with that Greek word, but the basic, basic definition for the word death is separation. That's what it means. You've got to be careful to know how it's being used. When the Bible talks about physical death, when we die physically, when we're separated physically, when we die physically, it means that we, our soul is separated from our body. Our body exceeds, uh, uh, ceases to exist. It dies, and our spirit moves on. That's the separation that happens when we physically die. But spiritual death is something else. When we spiritually die, it's when believers refuse to live the way they're supposed to, and God can no longer reward them, and he has to kind of put them in time out, if you will. When we spiritually die, it means we are separated from God relationally. And I know you've been there. I'm not going to have you raise your hands, but I know when I'm doing something I shouldn't do. Because I feel myself getting more and more distant from God. When I go down south and visit my grandma, there is darkness. And then there is darkness in the holler in Kentucky. It's a whole different darkness. Right? I mean, this is no joke. You ever heard someone say they couldn't see the hand in front of their face? This sounds like a clever, pithy, you know, statement. It is true down there. You literally walk out, and if there's not a porch light on, you're like, I can't see my hand. It's right in front of me. But we always knew to stay to where we could see the light from my grandma's back porch. You know, and the farther away we got from that, the scarier it was. The farther away we got from that, that, that porch, the more trouble we knew we were in when my grandma found out. The farther away from we got from that porch, the less security we had, the less, the less feeling confident we had. 
And that's how I, I reconcile this, because when you're not living the way you're supposed to, I feel like it's the kid walking so far away from the porch light you can barely see it anymore, and all you have left around you is darkness. That's what it's like when, when you're spiritually dying. Now, can you lose your salvation? No, but God's not going to let you feel good about rejecting him and living in sin. He's just not going to do it. And this is kind of what he's talking about here. Now, there are some sins that, that, can, that we commit that can result in the loss of life. One thing, and this is tough to preach on, but I'm going to do it because I think you can handle it. God will never take our eternal life because, you know, it's eternal life, so it kind of means forever, right? He can't take that from you. He does have the right to take your physical life. Now, everybody who dies is not God taking them, so don't take me that way, right? But there are examples in the Bible where people have just gone too far. And now they're becoming a hindrance to God's plan. And actually, it's merciful. He's taking them out of the way so that they don't hinder other people and keeping them from getting in any more trouble. It's actually merciful. They're still going to be going to heaven. But listen to this to kind of explain it before I move on. John, uh, 1 John five sixteen. It says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not what? Leading to death. Uh, he shall... Uh, let's see, not leading to death. He shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who committed sin, not leading to death. Now listen to this. There is a sin, what? Leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. So now you can't email me and say you didn't like that I preached that, because the Bible just told you. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. He's saying don't pray when someone's sinning. God, show them, kill them. (laughs) He's saying that's not what I'm saying. Right? But in verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. Now, the sin leading to death, for an example, there was a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And I'm not going to take you there because I'm probably running late anyway. But Ananias and Sapphira, and when the church first began, people were giving just about everything they had to build the church and to, and to build and help other churches. And they were really working hard and giving I mean, people whine about giving 10% or giving whatever they give. These people were probably giving 40, 50%, if not more, because they almost lived communal. They were trying to get something started, right? And Ananias and Sapphira wanted to look like they were committed, but they liked their money too much. But they wanted to look like they were given it all. So they went before the apostle and they said, here's everything, and laid everything there. But they had held back a huge portion. They were lying. When you brought something to offer it for the use of God, that's not a good time to lie because you're actually lying to God. So they came up and, and, and laid this down and said, this is all. And they said, are you sure it's all? You've held some back. And because of that, this day, these men will carry your body out. So the first one to come in and say that was Ananias. And he ended up dying and they carried him out. Then his wife comes in and holds the company line. She doesn't know if they just packed her husband out dead. And he says, so did you guys give us everything? Everything. We gave everything. Now those men will carry you out. They both, both their lives were taken. He told them, listen, what you had was yours. You had the right to give us all or nothing. But why did you lie? Why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? They wanted the credit of being spiritual without being spiritual. And God could not allow people to think at this critical point in history that it was okay to hold back and lie to God about it. And so that's why he took them out. So that sounds that sounded real spiritual. That's why he took them out with his Jesus hitman. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, so there were there are examples of that. Ananias and Sapphira. There's several more examples of that. But it's really important to understand that there is a time when God will say enough, believers. There's a time when He will say, you know what? Now you're becoming a hindrance. 
You were annoying before when you weren't being faithful. You got more annoying as you encouraged others to be less faithful. But now you're just getting in the way and hindering people from believing it's time to come home. There is a time when that has to happen. It kind of makes me think of when you stayed out too late and you missed your curfew and you see your dad coming walking through the night. You know that's going to be a rough trip back, don't you? Right? It's kind of what I see, the, the, the dad coming out saying, enough, get in the house. This is kind of what that is. Now in verse, uh, in verse 17 and 18, uh, James kind of contrasts the origin of temptation with the origin of blessing. Look at this. It says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from what? Above, Above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he has brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creation. So here we have, you see, the origin of our sin is our sinful nature. And the origin of the good things in our life is God. Understanding that is really, really important. It's impossible for human beings to give a, good, uh, to give a perfect gift. Did you know that? It's impossible. First of all, the gift itself can't be perfect if it can be, you know, if it can rot or if it can, you know, devalue, if it can break easily. It's not perfect in and of itself. But also, most people don't give something without at least a little bit of an ulterior motive. Some people give something and they expect something in return. They look at it more as an investment, right? Which is kind of ironic at Christmas, which is a whole other topic. You know what I mean? But everybody's spending a ton of money on other people. And I, this thought crossed my mind, and I love Christmas, so please don't hold this against me. But I thought, how about you just look at each other and go, whatever you're going to spend on me, just go buy whatever you want. And that way I don't get more socks. No. But you see what I'm saying? People, when they give, they usually are thinking about getting something back, or they're giving to manipulate or, or to gain influence. Only God can give a perfect gift. And the perfect gifts he gives are blessings and the ability to be in heaven with him, the ability to serve in the kingdom. But when he gives, there's no ulterior motives. Everything he gives is given perfectly. It's the perfect gift. That's the only one who can give that perfect gift because it'll last forever. And I love what he says in verse 18. He says, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Sometimes theologians get hung up here based solely on semantics. You know what that is? It just means wordplay. Some people get tied up here. Because the first part of verse 18, it says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. There's really nothing to debate there, you would think. But there is a debate about that, and it, and it drives me crazy. Because some believe that verse 18 proves that people are saved by divine election alone. Meaning God created you for heaven or created you for hell. Some people think that supports that. It does not. They think that divine election is that God just said, you know what, I'm going to let this many billion go to heaven and this many people be kindling for the fire. That's, I mean, that's what they think. And they feel like this supports it and that's that's not the case they believe that the exercise of his will means that god will only allow the people that he wanted to believe to believe and that is not what it means uh, and and that reasoning is flawed in its very core because it negates man's responsibility and yes man does have a responsibility in, in becoming a believer look at this john six forty. Uh, for this is the will of my father this is red letter this is jesus speaking for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have what? Eternal life. Eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Right? I mean, our responsibility is to behold the Son. That means understand who He is and believe in Him. And the ability to do that, God has already given us. So it's not even a work we have to drum up. We just have to access it. So there is a responsibility with man. And Jesus made sure that everybody had an opportunity. And we see that in Titus. Titus 2.11. It says, For the grace of God... Uh, has appeared bringing what 
salvation to all men. Does that mean everybody's going to be saved? No. But what it means simply is that all men will have access to salvation. I've had people ask me, what about those tribes in Africa that have never seen white men? Newsflash, white people aren't the only ones Jesus loves. Right? We are all equal. We're all created equal. And God has a way of reaching them like he had a way of reaching us. Listen, how did he reach Moses when he was alone in the desert? He didn't have UPS send him something, right? He didn't email him. A bush caught on fire and spoke to him. That's how he found Moses. Do I think God would speak through a burning bush to someone in some tribe that has never seen man? Or Sure he would. Why wouldn't he? Did he, he doesn't love Moses more than them, does he? If he knows that's the only way they're going to get that, that they're going to get the possibility of believing, then he'll do it because it says here that he will make it accessible to everyone. So I, do, here's the answer to that. I don't know how he reaches them. But I know he does. That's all that matters to me. Right? So that whole theory is just flawed there. Because the, the phrase brought us forth is from the Greek, opokeueo. I don't know if I said that right, but we're going to go with it. Uh, and it means to bring uh, into being, to cause to exist, or to give birth to. Right? This is really important. Or to give birth to. You know this, the, the words born again? This is kind of the, the origin of that. And Peter talks about this, something similar. Look at this, 1 Peter 1.3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in 23, 1 Peter 2.23. For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. And I, I just love how James said we were brought through by the word of truth. I love this. We are brought through by the word of truth. See, God's role in salvation, God the Father is, is, is it's, I'm trying to think of a way to say this, is revelatory, right? It, it's re, it re, he reveals, his job is to reveal the grace of God to us. That's his job, right? And he, re, he reveals it to us all the time. He's constantly revealing it to us. But his, his main way of doing that is through the word. When I believed, it was two simple scriptures that brought me to Christ. Because my struggles were, I first, I thought that if anybody had committed too many sins to be forgiven, it was me. That was my first struggle. I remember telling my wife, I can't be saved, I've gone too far. And she's like, I, I think you're overthinking it. Right? And the second hang-up I had was I thought people had to be good enough to impress God. I thought they had to have this big list of good works on their resume. And this one pastor read this one verse to me, and I got saved after I heard it. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace, meaning unmerited favor, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that what? Not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not what? Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. And when I heard that, it changed everything. I felt like what James was saying brought us forth by the word of truth, that's what happened to me. I heard the truth that I couldn't earn it, that it was all a gift and I had to accept it and it brought me through to salvation. It brought me through to becoming a believer. And I truly, truly, truly believe that's how that worked. Now, um, what time do we got here? Okay, I'm going to go ahead and close there. We'll pick up next week. I'm going to have to, I see that I, my outline is a lot longer. So I'm going to ask if you would to please bow your heads. We always like to give a brief invitation. If this is uh, your first time here, uh, we just do that because we want to give you the opportunity to let us pray for you. So every head is bowed. If you're not sure where you stand with God or you just want prayer, just make eye contact and put your head right back down. Bless those people. Bless those people. And I'm not going to chase you down or email you. Bless those people. If you're watching or listening online, God knows your heart. We'll cover you. But believers, I, I'm, I'm going to pray for us today. 
because the more I study James, the more I realize we're too quick to throw up the white flag. The least bit of persecution we're ready to run or change churches or, you know, or, or just stay away from church altogether, stop reading. And, and we have got to realize that though we are running away from a situation that could make us stronger and make us more effective if we'd see it through. If we would be as faithful to God as he is to us, we would all be so perfectly mature. And that's what I want to pray for us. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Uh, I just pray, God, that if there's someone here who doesn't know you or listening or watching online, whatever it is that's holding them back, just remove that. Uh, there's so much religion and so much stuff that's taught to them that confuses them. I just want them to see the simple fact that your son died so that whoever believed what he did was enough to guarantee their eternal life could have it free of charge. So whoever they are, whatever they've done, make them realize that doesn't matter. All they need to do is believe. If they make that decision, I pray they contact us. And Lord, for those of us who are believers, give us a little bit bigger backbone. Let us be willing to stand up during persecution. Let us experience the blessing that comes from being faithful. Because I know, Lord, once we start experiencing that, we'll never want to turn back. Give us a passion to serve and a zeal to be faithful. We just pray that you would go with us as we leave here and keep us safe. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, we just pray we would come together one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.